Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is John Fee. John is professor of American history at Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. He's the author of numerous books, most recently, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. Believe me may be the most commonly used phrase in Donald Trump's lexicon. Whether about building a wall or protecting the Christian heritage, the refrain is constant. And to the surprise of many, about 80% of white evangelicals have believed Trump, at least enough to help propel him into the White House. Historian John Fee is not surprised, and in Believe Me, he explains how we have arrived at this unprecedented moment in American politics. An evangelical Christian himself, Fee argues that the embrace of Donald Trump is the logical outcome of a long-standing evangelical approach to public life defined by the politics of fear, the pursuit of worldly power, and a nostalgic longing for an American past. In the process, Fee challenges his fellow believers to replace fear with hope, the pursuit of power with humility, and nostalgia with history. Believe me, it's a great book, and I had a great conversation with John about it. I give you John Fee. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, any professor at my alma from my alma mater, Messiah College, I'm thrilled to have on the show. Uh, I've, I've spent some great years there. It's a great school. Yeah, thanks. I, I, you know something? I had no idea until you mentioned that at some point, but I guess I forgot. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, the Go Falcons. <laughs> You've written a, a really interesting book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. Now, what, what strikes me is I have several friends who don't know a lot, multiple, many, many friends actually, who don't know much about American Protestantism or evangelicalism in general, who I'm thinking, okay, this would be helpful for them. But my sense is that's not completely who you wrote the book for, right? Because as I read the book, my, my sense is that evangelicals don't know the roadmap to how they got here either, right? Yeah, I mean, evangelicals are really, really bad at history. Um, you know, there's something there's something baked into cake about American evangelicalism. It's such a kind of uh, it, it's such a kind of a historical uh, brand of Christianity, brand of Protestantism, kind of if you want to look at it that way. Uh, it's not something that is necessarily has had a long history of kind of being rooted in like church tradition or, you know, the church fathers and those kinds of things. So, you know, that's, that's where we're starting at, right? Right. You know, whenever you talk about evangelicals and their history, uh, you know, they don't really think about having much of a, much of a history. Uh, so evangelicals, the whole term evangelical, Evangelicalism or evangelicals is a term that, in some ways, I find that a lot of a lot of evangelicals either don't understand or have kind of shied away from. I had a it's funny. I had a work study student uh, who I put on an assignment. I gave her an assignment. I said, find the 100 largest churches, uh, evangelical churches in the United States, and search their websites for the term evangelical. And I think there were maybe one or two that even had the word anywhere. I mean, these were clearly kind of evangelical churches as defined by uh, a commitment to the sort of born again experience, the inspiration of the word of God, the centrality of the cross, um, 
you know, this kind of evangelism, uh, but, but they didn't use the term. So, so in some ways, when pundits talk about the term, or at least critics of the term evangelicalism within the Christian community, refer to the term as being associated with kind of now a political agenda, um, they may have a point. And and for shorthand for evangelicals, you're talking about people that generally believe faith has to be personal, right? You can't just kind of show up to church or mass every now and again, mouth yeah. some things. You have to be able to talk in some ways about this personal faith you have connected to Jesus yeah. Christ. That and, and it's a faith for everybody, right? It's part is that you have to share this evangel, this good news, right? And generally, there's a pretty high view of the Bible, right? Something like right. inerrancy or infallibility. I mean, they believe the Bible's. Uh, you know, they believe the Bible's authoritative, even believe the leather is genuine. I mean, this is, they take it incredibly seriously, right? I mean, would you add any other shorthand definitions to the shorthand well, definition? You know, in, in scholarly communities, people who are scholars who study evangelicalism, um, this is constantly a contested term. Um, if you think about evangelicals historically, uh, the way evangelicals have behaved or engaged with the culture and so forth, um, you know, you could add all kinds of characteristics that have been consistent. You know, for example, I think evangelicals have always had a particular issue with, um, you know, uh, race. I mean, you know, we often talk about white evangelicalism. But I also, if you wanted to find the term theologically, uh, I do think the best definition remains um, the so-called Bebbington quadrilateral, uh, David Bebbington, uh, who suggested that an evangelical Christian is someone who embraces, uh, again, the centrality of the cross or, or crucif crucicentrism is the word he uses, um, the necess necessity of conversion, a born again experience, uh, an encounter with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross, and an embracing as an individual uh, that message as the message of salvation. Um, the Bible, yes, evangelicals, I think it's fair to say, can debate about just how much the Bible is inerrant, how much it is a book about science and technology. I'm sorry, science and and history, as opposed to a book of, that is that is infallible in spiritual questions. And then, you know, I think this activism question, as you mentioned, evangelism, right? Going out and sharing one's faith. I think you could also look at activism in terms of not just kind of the pure kind of evangelism, but also living out one's faith and sort of service service to others. So for me, that remains that that definition is is still kind of very helpful in identifying what an evangelical Christian is. Then we could get into whole kinds of debates about like how often you go to church or, you know, how, you know, whether you believe in adult baptism or infant baptism, you know, all these kind of minor issues, I think, could be debated within the, the community of evangelicals. But the other point important part is there's a lot of Christian uh, denominations and churches, you know, who believe all four of those things uh, in pieces, right? So, you know, a Catholic may not necessarily talk about a born again or conversion experience, right? Um, but I think if you put all four of those things together in a package, uh, you have an evangelical Christian. Now, a lot of people in the media, everywhere, you know, MSNBC, CNN, you know, Bill Maher, everybody asks this question, how do these people that are so into holiness and the Bible and how do you, how do they get to Donald Trump? And you, you say in your book that you're not only a historian, you've been to divinity school. And I can tell because you have a three point sermon here. You have like a three point, three pronged explanation. You say, well, 
I'll tell you how we get here. Evangelicals are plagued by fear. There's always been this yearning for power and influence. And p- part of this could be noble to shape the the culture. Part of it could be, yeah. you know, have a darker underside. And the third thing you say is nostalgia. That, that, that there's this always that, that there's this kind of mythology, the the great American nation. So you put the victimization, you, you mix this in a, in a. I was going to say a cocktail shaker, but we're talking about evangelicals. You mix it in a, a smoothie blender. You, you mix the fe- you mix the fear. You mix the desire for influence and power and the tendency to myth- mythology and, and nostalgia. And yeah. here you get the the cocktail or smoothie that that yeah. gets you to embrace of Donald Trump. Yeah. And I think it's care. I think I like how you put that because we need to be careful. I'm not trying to make an argument that fear, the pursuit of power and um nostalgia are are defining characteristics correct theological characteristics of evangelicals nor am i trying to say that evangelicals historically have always responded uh to to change or culture in this way but they have done it and they have done it on on numerous occasions throughout history and we see the latest manifestation of that uh, with Donald Trump. And what I think Trump did was he was able on, uh, as opposed to any other kind of, any other of the GOP candidates he ran against in the primaries to be able to tap in, not to the hopeful side of American evangelicalism, not to the evangelical kind of witness that fought to end slavery in the 19th century, or that, the evangelical message of of hope and salvation and grace and joy uh, and and justice that has largely um, you know we we see examples of that in history. But what he tapped into was uh, the weaknesses, the darker side of evangelicalism, the history of evangelicals and their sinful inclinations. Like we're all sinners, I would argue. Um, but when evangelicals were at their worst, um, that is the kind of spirit for, for whatever reason, I don't know if he had help doing this, but Trump was able to sense that, you know, evangelicals have these, these, these fears about their Christian nation, I think those fears are largely unfounded, especially about the idea of America being a Christian nation. I actually wrote a book about that uh, six or seven years ago. They're they're concerned if they they want to they want to help or solve those fears by pursuing power, political power. That's their only playbook, um, at least those on the Christian conservative right. And and they're they're longing for this kind of golden age that if it did exist, it's no longer here. It's gone. And it may probably never, it's probably never going to come back or it may not have even existed in the first place is, is uh, something I argue in the book. So, yeah, yeah, so that, Trump yeah. into- that's something that, that a lot of people don't realize. Right. And you, you spent a lot of great, you, you cover this a lot in the book in, in really helpful detail that, you know, I mean, the highest point for church attendance in the country was the early 1960s. And, and, and you know, I mean, people in the 18th century, fewer people went to church and they went less often. And this idea that everyone was in church all the time is kind of a myth. And, you know, what's interesting, I, I think people might have a sense of the abortion debates and some of these things and how that plays into evangelical fear. But you just spend some, some great time explaining how in the book, how really Eisenhower, you know, post-World War II, this sort of civic spirit, anti-communism, you know, yeah. we put under God in the pledge. People are joining churches. You open church doors, people just show up, just like they do for Kiwanis and other civics things. Yeah. At the same time, you make this great point that the courts are are 
prohibiting Bible reading and prayer. And so the the evangelicals are going with sort of the president and the wider culture, and and they feel threatened by the courts, which I think that's a story I don't hear told very often. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is a kind of paradox. So so what you see are these kind of um, symbols. If, if you know, there, there is, let, let's face it, Scott, there is a, there always has been a Christian, uh, overwhelmingly Protestant culture in the United States. But that culture becomes intensified uh, during periods of uh, religious revival that take place. You can see the influence of evangelical Christianity, for example, in the founding of educational institutions during the first great awakening of the 18th century. You can see the way evangelicalism influenced the culture through um, reform movements like anti-slavery, prison reform, uh, women's rights in the early 19th century during the second great awakening. If we look at the 1950s as a period of revival, right? I hesitate to call it a third great awakening, right? But but a, a period of religious revival, you begin to see these signs and symbols. So, for example, a lot of the you know, those on the Christian right will appeal to sort of early 19th century buildings that have under God or or God in God we trust or they'll take you to Washington, D.C. and they'll say, see, we were founded on this. And in some ways, those are all the products of these revivals, much in the same way that Eisenhower's uh, attempt to sort of construct a Christian nation through in God we trust on on, on money, uh, through under the, the Pledge of Allegiance and so forth, is part of a religious revival. Um but the, the, again, there's always it's oh it's not always that simple, right? I mean, during the first Great Awakening and during the revivals that took place under George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, you also had the per, the penetration of the Enlightenment, right, at its height in America in the 18th century. The same thing with the 1950s and the 60s, right? You're right about church membership. That's something most evangelicals don't understand. Uh, church membership is at its height during this period, but also you have these alternative forces working to try to uh, remove, again, drawing perhaps from the Enlightenment again, uh, trying to remove religion from public schools, prayer from public schools, and, and um in many ways, trying to uphold what Justice Hugo Plack in 1947 called the wall of separation between church and state. So both are happening at the same time. And we historians, you know, if we want to be true, his, true to the past, uh, we need to tell both sides of that story. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You're at a, 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 one of the premier, I think, Christian evangelical institutions in the country. I mean, Messiah College said Rhodes Scholars. I mean, it's an impressive place. And you talk in this book about the 81% of evangelicals who supported Donald Trump. You're part of that 19%, right? Like, I I have friends at places like Wheaton College, Fuller Seminary, uh, pastors in prominent congregations who are in that 19%. But it it just seems like anymore that that, that there's this fight for the center. But if 81% have supported Donald Trump. Has the center moved? I mean, like, I mean, there's this sense in which a lot of evangelicals in, in, in these elite evangelical institutions who they're full of never Trumpers. I mean, I, 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 my friend who teaches at Wheaton college doesn't know one faculty member that supported Donald Trump. Maybe there was one, I don't know, but he did, he, you know, several friends have told me that, but there's this sense in which it is, is Trumpism kind of taking over evangelicalism. Like it's taking over the Republican party. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, first of all, let me respond by saying of those 81% who voted for Donald Trump, I think we sometimes have, and I'm probably guilty of this too, we've sometimes lumped those 81% into some kind of unified package, right? They all believe the same thing. Um, you know, I think you have a lot of evangelicals who are rabid Trump supporters. They show up at Trump rallies, right? They think Trump is a savior. He's the new King Cyrus, or he's the he's God's anointed and so forth. So I think you have have that kind of extreme uh, Trump group. I don't think all the 81% are in that group. Um, you know, you obviously have to factor in, and I'm talking here as it more of a historian and observer than anything else right now. You have to factor in the presence of Hillary Clinton in the election of 2018 or 16, you know, people closing their, holding their nose and voting for Trump. I just got back from a 10 city book tour, uh, around most of the, some major cities east of the Mississippi. And I've talked now to dozens and dozens of, of Trump supporters who, uh, either a regret their vote for Donald Trump, um, you know, the kind of what about Hillary question, uh, you know, all of these kinds of things. So the 81 percent, um, you know, we'll see. I'm not a futurist. I'm not a prophet. I'm a historian. You know, I'd much rather study this 30 years later, right, <laughs> 30 years down the road and see what it is. But but is the center moving? I think there there is some there is some change happening. I think a lot of it has to do with education uh, and class. Uh, I, you're right. I don't know of any um, Messiah College professors who voted for Donald Trump. I can think of a handful who, who you know, maybe it's a toss up. I'm not sure. <laughs> but but, um, you know, I think places like we in places like Fuller, uh, you know, these kind of places where you have thoughtful, educated evangelicals, they may be conservative. Right. But they may have supported like Rubio or or Kasich, you know, uh, in the GOP primary. Um, I think I think uh, most of the rabid Trump supporters are individuals who um, largely have not thought deeply about questions of political engagement, questions about uh, the world. Uh, so I think there's a sense in which um, part of what we're seeing here reflects what the great Wheaton and later Notre Dame, uh, now retired American religious historian Mark Knoll described back in 1994 as the scandal of the evangelical mind. I think there's a direct connection between uh, evangelical thinking, and I'm not just talking about evangelical scholars, you know, kind of getting a seat at the table at Harvard. I'm talking about just basic understanding of civics, history, literature, philosophy, politics. Uh, there's no space within American evangelicalism uh, to, to cultivate these things at a local church level. And in fact, most American evangelical college students do not attend a Christian college where they engage with these kinds of things. Many of you know, they're, they're not engaging in kind of robust thinking about the relationship between faith, politics, faith and learning, faith and the, the fate of the country and these kinds of things. So for me, that that's where the rub is in a lot of ways. And that's why your your comments about Wheaton and Fuller are, are you know, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it, it, Michael, uh, Michael uh, Gersom wrote a piece in the Atlantic at Gerson, I wrote a piece in the Atlantic a few months ago, really taking evangelicals to task for the continued Donald Trump support and, and the numbers 
that we're seeing it. And, and my friend David French, who's been on the podcast a few times, a, 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 an original Never Trumper. I mean, this guy was yeah. an early yeah. Never Trumper. It's been really, it's received awful correspondence from the alt right. And all, I mean, yeah. David's been, there, but, but he he had a critical response, you know, to. Gersom, he said, you know, it's, I, I agree with some things, but not others. And in the conclusion, he says, Gersom has written a powerful essay, but it understates the justification for evangelical support for Trump and exaggerates rank and file evangelical perfidy. Per- evangelicals aren't worse than other American political tribes. Instead, we're proving that in politics, we're just like everyone else. In other words, the true sin of white American evangelicalism isn't that we're exceptionally bad. It's that we're not exceptional at all. And I take French there saying, hey, look, a lot of evangelicals, and again, this is a never-Trumper who who is still critical of Trump, but was from the beginning. He's saying, look, I'm going to get my judges. I'm going to get tax cuts. We're going to slow the rise of secularism. We, we, you know, got Hillary Clinton. We kept her out of the White House, and I'm sure she's somewhere in the book of Revelation dispensational charts as somebody that's going to bring about the end of the world. I mean, her and Obama. So, you know, what we, we've done, you know, and hey, yeah, he's awful. We know it. Uh, he, he and and but he's going to defend us. You know, we've been pushed around. You talk about the fear and anxiety, and we'd like to sort of be p- part of the cultural power playing establishment. And look, this guy gives us the shot. He's making America great again. I mean, that's just a kind of calculated. Everybody makes calculated. There's no perfect candidates, right? And and so maybe evangelicals again, like they're they're just normal people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um. You know, I, I like some of David French's stuff. We disagree, I think, on a lot of issues. I think if Trump, I think if Trump were pulled out of the equation, right, and he wasn't elected, I think it's interesting because this whole Trump phenomenon makes makes uh, people who might disagree uh, and might not hang around with each other suddenly kind of in the same bed together, right? You know, we're all anti-Trumpers. I think a lot of times my own work as an evangelical Christian, uh, because I've been so staunchly anti-Trump has been um and i'm kind of getting a little distracted here with this comment but um but has been kind of widely embraced by by my secular friends and academics and pundits and so forth because it's anti-trump i often wonder what happens when you pull um when you pull trump out of the equation and now suddenly all i'm left with is uh, a sort of evangelical thinker who also is pro-life you know and upholds other things suddenly we're not so so back to French, I think, um, you know, one of the things about David French and some of the anti-Trumpers that I see is that um, these a guy like David French, I think, is against Trump, uh, you know, for for sort of moral character issues. Right. I, I'm not sure. I don't know his writings that well, but I'm not sure how much he necessarily disagrees uh, with with Trump's policy. Um, I don't know what his position was about kids on the border. I'm guessing he probably spoke out against that. But, you know, you if if Trump was a upstanding man, like, a you know, in evangelicals eyes, like a George W. Bush or a Ronald Reagan, uh, would someone like David French still criticize him for separating children from the border from his racist remarks at Charlottesville? I think he would. I'm, I don't want to pick on David French. I think he would be. And with David, you've got a twin kind of thing. And, and David and I also are very different. Yeah. Ends the spectrum politically. But for David, it's not just the 
character stuff. It's also David's a, a purist conservative, right? I mean, he, yeah. you know, so, and Trump is not, I mean, Trump doesn't have an ideological or moral, but I mean, I watched the past couple, ra- I, you know, I, the last rally in Ohio, because I'm a, I'm a masochist, so I will watch these things. And I watched the last one to try to find anything moral that was said in the statement in, in, yeah. the, in the rally. And all I could find was maybe this right to try. There was a, 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 you know, this legislation that he signed where you could get experimental treatment in Europe. There was a, a, a sentence that, that almost seemed like he knew what compassion was. And then maybe yeah. the opioids thing. It was, other than that, there's yeah. nothing moral. I mean, there's no sort of uh, nothing ideological, nothing moral, nothing. Yeah. It's just rah-rah. It, it's, kind of, it's interesting because uh, what did David Buckley say? You can, I'm as patriotic, William F. Buckley rather, said, I'm as patriotic as any American, but that patriotism includes no nationalism because right. nationalism is opposed to American patriotism. Well, Trump yeah. is sort of like, I'm not, I'm, he's not patriotic, he's just nationalist. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with everything you just said. Um, you know, my take also on this is, uh, you know, not only I mean, David French is a sort of political writer, right? He writes for the National Review. He thinks about politics and the fate of America. Uh, and I don't I know he's a churchman. And I think he's a Christian, right? I have respect everything I've heard about him. I don't know him, but I've, I respect him. Um, we differ on some things politically, not all things, but some things politically. Um, my book though is a little bit different. And, and, you know, back to your original question about how you would, I would respond to David French say, well, we got, we got, uh, abortion or we got the Supreme court, right? How I would respond to that. I would say, um, yes, fair, fair points across the board, right? However, um, you know, a lot of a lot of Christians, conservative Christians, I hear are thinking about the leg, Trump's legacy, right? In terms of the 20, 30, 40 years of what he's going to do with the Supreme Court, he's going to appoint originalists. He's got how many dozens and dozens of 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 lower level federal justices he's appointed in addition to Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, right? Um, that will be his legacy. He will have changed the court. Uh, you know, the next 20 or 30 years, there'll be more originalists. There'll be more conservatives. But, on the court. By, the, by the way, by the, it's widely reported that he was insistent that his nom- his Supreme Court nominees have great academic publishing records. And it's been reported, not that he wants to read any of it, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> which, which yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's just fantastic. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, 
John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Wittenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. But here's here's where here's where I want to follow up with that. In 20 or 30 years, the court will have been changed. And, you know, evangelicals, even to some extent, Trump's critics are kind of taking a victory lap. Right. Here's the question, Scott, that no one is asking. I haven't heard anyone, anyone ask this question. Where is the Church of Jesus Christ in 20 or 30 years as a result of their support for Donald Trump? What happens to the witness of the gospel in the world? What happens to these kinds of things? No one is asking that question because they are so driven by political expediency uh, with these Supreme Court justices and, and, you know, rolling back, uh, protecting religious liberty and so forth. That to me is a question I'm really, really interested in and tried to address in my book. It's interesting, you know, Michelle Margolis, I think it's going to come on the show later this month. Uh, she's at Penn and has done some research on, on, on religion and politics and the electoral connections. And she's just come out with a book showing that actually it's not now that religion is shaping the politics. Politics is shaping religion yep. such that you're let's say you're a secular kind of you're you're a non-observant sort of white conservative and you're in your 20 late 20s or 30s and you have you get married you have a kid if you're a liberal you are probably not going to go to church if you're a conservative you might actually cuz you're supporting conservative cause you might actually go to church and you see this actually if you look at MSNBC the people that are religious are sheepish to talk about it if you look at Fox People like Greg Gutfeld or, or, or CNN's SE Cup, they're not religious, they're agnostics or atheists, but they defend religion all the time because you're on the religious team. So you almost have this kind of religious party and secular party. So maybe evangelicals are thinking, well, this is our new form of evan- evangelism. We'll get people from <laughs> conservative fruits and we'll just have a sort of homogenous uh, uh, unit principle kind of approach to growth. Well, you... I mean, that's, you know, I haven't really heard that one before, but it's, but it's, it's plausible. Yeah. The demographics uh, are scary. Yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, the research right. and, and Professor Margolis's book is crazy. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's alarming. It's work. I haven't read it. I've read her stuff. Some of her pieces, her little short pieces. I mean, it, you know, it could be, you know, God works in mysterious ways. <laughs> On the other hand, um, you know, I'm also hearing stories to stories to the contrary. I don't have statistics. I have anecdotes. And that's the best I can do. I mean, I'm hearing people who are hurting, people who are giving up the faith, uh, people who are being told, you know, and these are extreme cases I often hear, the kind of people who come to my book talks who tell me, you know, I left evangelicalism after, um, you know, after my pastor told me, uh, you know, you're not going to be comfortable in this church if you voted for Barack. Obama, or I hear other pastors telling me uh, I'm counseling more people about uh, you know their anger and their their sense of betrayal that so many of their fellow Christians are voting for Donald Trump. Uh, I hear pastors telling me several during this book tour. Uh, you know, they said people are now asking me like I'm really attracted to your church, but do I have to be a Trump supporter in order to attend? Um, you know, I could go on and on with these kind of anecdotes. Um, I'm wondering what's happening to um, Christians. I'm wondering what's happening to the witness and testimony of people. I mean, so are evangelicals going to be happy 
just kind of like cup, uh, you know, to their cause, or do they really just, you know, want to kind of uh, uh, win over people who are secular, people who are atheists, people who've never thought deeply about religion? Um, to what extent? And we don't know the answer to these questions, right? But it's a question I think we need to ask: what are, to what extent is Trump hurting the witness and testimony? I look at my Twitter feed, right? Whatever you think about capital punishment. Robert Jeffress, uh, the First Baptist Church, uh, Dallas, went on Twitter the other day or yesterday and criticized the Pope's view on capital punishment. Right. Um, You know, I thought it was a pretty weak. I think it was a pretty weak uh, criticism based on like one Bible verse. I think you could probably make some kind of more sophisticated defense of capital punishment. I probably would disagree with it if that was the case, but you could at least make a more sophisticated thing. He is reluctant. No one will take his ideas seriously. Now, again, this is just capital punishment. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one will take his ideas seriously because he's associated with Trump and he's so supportive of, of, of Trump's agenda. So what is the witness of the church? What does it look like? We need to start asking that question. I'll tell you, two interesting names you bring up there. Pope Francis, I don't know. The two most awkward pictures I've ever seen with Donald Trump, I don't know which was more, the Queen or the Pope. They both had the similar expression, like, I can't believe I'm <laughs> in this. Man. And the other thing about Jeffers, one of the things that I think is is well worth the price of admission on your book, I mean, these Dobson quotes you have about what he said about Clinton and Lewinsky, and then coming out for for Trump so vociferously, but the, the, the this book I didn't know existed, Jeffers wrote a book, Twilight's Last Gleaming, yeah. How America's Last Days Can Be Your Best Days. He critiques Luther's position. You know, Luther said, you know, hey, if you want to, if you got, if I have a choice between if I'm sick and you give me a, a, a Muslim surgeon or a Christian butcher, I'll take the Muslim surgeon. Yeah. Jeffers is like, no, no, no. You need Christian's character. Character. Then the guy, I mean, the whole book is about how, you know, the way to sort of win the culture is not sort of electoral politics. It's, it's, it's sort of the leavening of the culture. Then the guy just does a complete 180 and, and, and sort of eats everything in that book and now is an unadulterated, unabashed supporter of, of Trump. Even in his worst moments, he will yeah. be an apologist for Trump. I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, you know, you could call it hypocrisy. I used to call it hypocrisy. But hypocrisy means nothing, Scott. If the it's not hypocrisy, the, the the accusation of hypocrisy is not a zinger to somebody if you accuse them of that. If they don't believe they're being hypocritical, you know. I think people, you know, like you could call Robert Jeffries a hypocrite all you want, but he doesn't believe he's a hypocrite. He believes that you know, you know, suddenly now. Uh, Abortion and religious liberty are the two most important things. And whatever Trump does, uh, you know, he will he will support him in order to get those agendas. So I don't I, I you know, I, I get frustrated. I'm not I tried to explain it in the book and I, I it's it's a complete 180. You're right. I mean, Franklin Graham, for example, I like Franklin Graham. I, I saw he's Samaritan's Purse is just doing wonderful work with the with the uh, California wildfire at Redding, California. You know, there's an evangelical college there, Simpson College. It's not getting a lot of press. It's a Christian Missionary Alliance school. I mean, they're doing wonderful work. But, you know, back in 98, you know, he said that Bill Clinton was, it was, it couldn't have been clear in that Wall Street Journal piece he wrote in 1998. Bill Clinton, uh, regardless of what his policies were, regardless of anything he does, I mean, he could, you know, I, I read that as he could be quickly become pro-life, right? Uh, he is unfitting to he is unfit to be president because of his moral character alone 
alone. Forget about the policies. He could do everything for evangelical Christians and he's still unfit to be president. You know, I mean, that is, that is, I don't understand it. I mean, it's just such political expediency. And this is what I mean by the church being sort of held captive by these political ideas. Let's break it down a little bit, right? What are those political ideas? I mean, you hate Hillary Clinton, right? I, I think, you know, I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, uh, but I think I think evangelicals have some issues here. They hate her. Evangelicals are not supposed to hate. They have baggage with her. Uh, abortion is another question, right? Is abortion the best way to, is the Supreme Court the best way to change hearts and minds on abortion? That's a question that's up for debate. What this book I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get people to get out of the playbook, the Christian right box. I mean, I think I say when I'm on these book tours, I, books, book uh, speaking engagements, I say, I'm an American historian. Um, you know, I don't really teach much of this, the modern U.S. I'm mostly an early American historian. But I think I think when I look at my textbook, there's like two paragraphs on Jerry Falwell Sr. He should have a whole chapter. This guy may have been the most influential political figure in, in since World War II because he taught millions and millions of evangelicals to think politically within that box. When you have people like Michael Gerson, James Davison Hunter, whose book should change the world, I would recommend to your listeners. I don't know if you've had him on. You have a whole tradition of uh, Calvinists in the Dutch Reformed tradition. Uh, you have people like John Anazu and his wonderful book, Confident Pluralism, Anazu and Evangelical, They're all articulating very deep, very reasoned, very thoughtful ways of Christians engaging that, that, culture. That, that's the problem. That's, that's the problem. It's, it's deep and it's reasoned, and they don't build theme parks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I'll tell you, you know, you know, you know, you know, so much of America is there, right? I mean, it's, it, I mean, that sort of substantive level of, of thought, it just, it, I mean, that's the, I agree with you. I mean, I, and, and those people don't get any headlines. I mean, it's interesting. At the conclusion of the book, you talk about giving some talks, that, you know, as this book's forming, and someone comes up and asks you, well, "What do we do?" And, and I found, I mean, you have this sort of cautious hopefulness that that if yeah. at the conclusion you say, you know, if we could counter evangelical fear with a call to hope, if 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 evangelicals could move from the power court position to humility, and if if yeah, you know, your last sort of nostalgia to history, I was thinking about Luther's um, Heidelberg Disputation, where he says, you know, the theologian. The difference between the theologian of the cross versus the theologian of the glory is the theologian of the cross can see reality for what it is. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to look away from the dark side of reality. And you say if, if, if those two things, you know, hope, history, and humility could, could be the evangelical watchwords for a while, that maybe it could change the, the shape of evangelical culture. I agree. I mean, that's, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I just rattled off all those names, Gerson, Hunter, Anazu. You know, the one I, the one I find most compelling is the one I write about in the last chapter of the book, the civil rights movement. Whatever you think, whatever evangelicals think about Martin Luther King's theology, right? I mean, yeah, was he a social gospeler? You know, I mean, yeah, forget about that, right? Um, look at their model for engaging culture, right? Deeply hopeful, willing to suffer if necessary, right? Uh, we, we, you know, I, I sometimes worry about this great defense of religious liberty, which I think is clearly legitimate. I think there's some serious issues here with religious liberty in this country, especially for Christian colleges like, like Messiah, the one you went to and the one where I teach. Um, 
On the other hand, you know, where's the rhetoric of kind of, you know, the first century church of suffering, right? Um, hope always comes with suffering, right? You're looking beyond this world. Um, you know, I think, I think humility, right? I mean, we, we worship a God who, uh, manifested himself in the form of a, of a human and died, right? For the sins of the world. We have a, we have a, a, a savior who was taken to the mountaintop in Matthew four by Satan and offered all the power of the world and turned his back on that power, you know, and then history, History could be you could be understood specifically as like we need to rethink who we are in light of America. Uh, you know, we're not a Christian nation. We may have never been a Christian nation, but I think history could also be used as a larger umbrella term for uh, Christians need to to worship God with their minds. It's one thing to say, well, Christians are anti-intellectual. Evangelicals are anti-intellectual you know, they're, they're, they're dumb. They don't make good decisions. That's not going to get us anywhere. But if we can somehow make an appeal to, to people, uh, that the use of the mind, politics, history, philosophy is an act of worship to God. Um, that may be our best Avenue in now, having said that I'm not, I'm hopeful. What, what else can I be? I have to be, I'm called to be hopeful. I, I, I live a faith of hope, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 You're, you're looking for tenure here at a Christian college. You got to have some hope. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have tenure. Right? All right. That's well, there you go. The you, you, can, was... you can be a cynic then. Okay. Forget well, that. That's <laughs> the I wrote this book, right? Um, I, you know, because I have tenure, but I, I probably should, I probably would never have come out. This is my sixth book. I probably would never, should never have, I would never have come out of the gates with this book. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, we need to, we need to be thinking more about uh, these kinds of educational, you know, endeavors and so forth. And, and I think evangelical scholars are sometimes to blame. I think there's a lot of evangelical scholars uh, today, um, many of them actually a younger generation. I'll just put this out there. You know, I might get in trouble for this. Who care more about their acceptance in uh, the academic world than they do in serving the church and bringing their expertise to the church? Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I was nurtured in the school of Christian leaders like Mark Knoll, George Marsden, others who 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 love the church. Uh, and love the academy, but we need to just we need to just be reorienting the way we think about um, you know bringing good history and good thinking to the and I, it, it's hard because evangelicals don't have spaces for these kinds of things. They've always been so kind of, you know, they have their colleges granted. Right. But, but think about a, your local congregation. I mean, when my book was America founded as a Christian nation came out in 2011, I really wanted to bring this message to evangelical churches, but all my invitations would come from mainline churches that had like an adult forum or contemporary issues class or whatever, where I could come and speak and the evangelical churches are like, no, we don't really want to wrestle with these questions. We'd much rather do evangelism or bring food to the poor, which are, you know, I'm not arguing with that. They're all great things. But there's no space within evangelical congregations at the local level for those who don't have the the opportunity to study at Messiah or Wheaton or some other place for this kind of thinking to go on. And I could keep going. 
latter part of my career to kind of reaching the church and thinking about ways to do it. I said at a recent book talk, I'd love to, I'd love if Messiah College gave me a sabbatical. I'd love to travel the country. My kids are grown now. I'd love to travel the country and speak to churches all over and try to get them to think more, think differently about these things. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a friend who was at a dinner with George Morrison and they had both gone to the same seminary and my friend was in biblical studies, and he said to George Marston, who's, of course, a prominent American religious historian, yeah. he said, why did you do church history? Like, why did you do American religious history? He said, well, I wanted to be, I wanted to stay in the church and really be a good scholar. And I knew, I was thinking about biblical studies, but I knew I couldn't go into Bible or theology and be a good scholar. Because if I brought back what I learned from advanced training, they tell me I can't teach it. But nobody cares. Uh, yeah. Your view on on Jonathan Edwards or... George Whitfield doesn't, you know, it doesn't mess up your view of the Bible or anything like that. So I could be a really good scholar if I studied, you know. And so I, I isn't that even part of the this tension of uh, the intellectual inquiry? I mean, all all communities have Darwinian presuppositions. I mean, liberal, conservative, secular, religious, but but there is this kind of a uh, uh, gatekeeping kind of tension, right? It's part of the fear and anxiety that sometimes may mitigate this possibility of. Uh, yeah. scholars really serving uh, to to you know address the sort of yeah. fear power nostalgia you're talking about it goes back to the old you know you probably heard this right you know back you know my parents generation you know my parents were not evangelicals um until later much much later in life but you know the generation of marston right it was always don't don't go to the university and study philosophy or or history or whatever because it's liberal and they're gonna they're gonna make you lose your faith and you know granted sometimes that happened but it created this fear this is just another dimension of the fear right you know we we, we're afraid to engage intellectually with the world simply because we could lose our faith or our faith could be changed um you know as a result of this um you know and and we don't. Yeah, that's that's part of it. You're exactly right. And, you know, that's why I respect such people like um, Marsden and Noel. I mean, in some ways I didn't study with either of them, but they've I've gotten to know them really, really well or relatively well. I've been on sessions with them and stuff and they tend to read my stuff and comment on my stuff. And, and I've I've I see them as kind of unofficial kind of mentors in that way. John, thanks for talking with me about these things. And I, I really do mean I mean, I think for listeners who are in the evangelical world and want to understand how it's gotten to this place or people who have no familiarity with it at all and are seeking to understand that segment of the culture that's playing a huge, still playing despite any secularities going on in the culture, still playing a huge role in American culture and politics. I believe me, the evangelical road to Donald Trump is a great place to start. Thanks for writing the book and for talking with me. Hey, thanks a lot, Scott. This has been fun. Great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find 
all the information there. Thanks again to John for coming on the podcast and do check out his new book, Believe Me. Believe me, you won't regret it. You see what I did there? Believe me. Thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.